Good morning, everybody. I'm wrapping up our message series called Rebuild. We've been looking at how we are going to rebuild after two years of really craziness and all sorts of, you know, you know how it's been the last two years. It's been pretty rough. And so as we look forward to 2022, we want to rebuild on a sure foundation. We want to build according to God's blueprints. We want to rebuild in such a way that we can both be blessed in our fellowship with God, but also accomplish the mission he's given us in all the different spheres of our lives. And so today we're going to be talking about restoring, restoring fellowship. And the passage we're reading is from Ephesians chapter 2. It's a longer passage. I'm going to read the whole thing. And the rest of the message, I'd like to talk about what it means and what it means for you and I. So let's go ahead and begin Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, to a church that was made up of Jews who became Christians and Gentiles who became Christians. There's a lot of division between them. Paul's trying to communicate to them something very important about what God has done to restore us. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise. You had no hope and without God in the world. Sounds pretty bad. But now in Christ, Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He did it by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, And peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Oh no. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, there's a lot in there, but we're going to talk about all that's in there. The big idea is this. In Christ, God has ended the war and has restored fellowship between himself and mankind. You see, God was at war with mankind. He created us as his children. He blessed us. It was all good. And then we rebelled against him. We said, we want your crown. We want your earth. We don't want your law. Get out of here. And then we began to build a world that was an open, hostile rebellion to God. We see this again and again in the scriptures. This is the consistent testimony. For example, a sampling. The Apostle Paul, the one who wrote that passage we just read, wrote the book of Ephesians. Just a couple of verses before the passage we just read. Here's what he says about our, our war with God. He says, among whom all once lived. That's you and me. We all lived like this in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, not the desires of God, and were by nature, all the way down to the bottom, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of the human race, the rest of mankind. We were objects of wrath. We were at war with God, and God, who is a righteous judge, was pouring out his wrath upon these rebel, wicked humans, all of us. This is our state. And so in the passage that we read just before, Paul summarizes it this way, emphasizing that we've been alienated, stretched, pulled away, we're we're fugitives, we're we're orphans from God. 
talking a little bit more from the angle of how this damages us. This is our state. Paul says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, and I'm going to skip the circumcision part, just which is made by the hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That's some that's some bad juju. That's a bad state. God was at war with mankind. Mankind was at war with God. How's that going to end? And the state of a play where we were at the beginning of this story, as you see, is that we were fatherless orphans. Imagine being an orphan on the street without a father. That was us. Nationless aliens. No access to the rights, the privileges, the opportunities of citizenship. Homeless strangers. Nobody wanted us. Nobody's helping us. Nobody's looking out for us. Hopeless. Godless. Ruled by sin and under the wrath of God. That's where we were. Bad, bad picture. And yet, in this passage that we're looking at, we see that that's not the end of the story. Because God, amazingly, restores fellowship between us and him. He restores fellowship between us and him. And so Paul writes in Ephesians 2.17, right after the passage we just read, after the bad news, here's the good news. And he came, he came to you, he came to me, he came to us, and he preached peace. Peace. To you who are far off. Peace to you rebels. Peace to you who are at war with God. Peace to you who are far off. And peace to those who are near. For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Oh, no, no, no. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of the household of God. What? What is this? What has God done? What does it mean he's restored fellowship? What it means is, is that he has moved in with us. Or rather, into us. You see, when God created man and woman, they walked with him in the cool of the day. They had sweet fellowship with him. There was no distance between them and God. But then they sinned and they were, they were cast out of the garden, out of God's presence. And yet God loved them. He built a tabernacle, a place that he would dwell in their presence. a little tent. That's where you went to meet God. And then that tabernacle was put into the temple. And that's where you went to meet God. But you see, now we live in a new time when we become the temple. Where God's spirit lives in us. That's how close God wants to be to you. That's what it means. That's the fellowship he's restored. That's the meaning of the part in the passage about the spirit. Then it says we're citizens. See, the citizens of the kingdom of God are entitled to all the promises that God has made in his covenants throughout time with his people. And he's made some amazing promises. Amazing promises. As citizens, we have a good, loving king who rules and protects us and provides for us. That's what we get as citizens of his kingdom. And we've been adopted. This is the best one. We've been adopted. That means there's always a place for you at your father's table. There's always a place for you. Your little name tag is always there. You're always welcome. Think about that. Imagine a, a, a family. You're young. There's a family. You just love going to their house. You just love it. It's so great. They're just great family, great people. You just love being there. And they tell you, you can come anytime. We've got a spot for you. It's always waiting for you. That's kind of a flavor of what this idea of adoption comes with. There's a room with your name on it in his house. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to walk with you in the cool of the day, just like he did with his son Adam and his daughter Eve. He has good plans for you as your dad. As your father, he's got big ideas for you, and he, he's going to personally teach you. He's going to ensure that you get the training and the development you need. He's going to give you opportunities, big opportunities, just just enough that you can handle it. He's going to make sure that you have all that you need. And he wants you to be part of that family business that he's running. He's ruling the universe. And he's invited you as image bearers of God to come and rule with him. 
He gives you stewardships. He gives you opportunities. He gives you things to do just as much as you can handle. And if you're faithful, like a good father, he gives you more and gives you more. And he gives you as much as you can handle. That's your father who's adopted you. And because you're a son and daughter in the household, you get to inherit all your father has. And that's the whole world. The meek will inherit the earth. That's a promise. The earth is our inheritance. And we're receiving it slowly as we walk with the Lord Jesus and as he builds his kingdom over this planet, over the centuries, over the eons. So, this is a beautiful thing. This fellowship has been restored. Wow. Now, how did God pull that off? How did he make peace between us? What price did he pay for this peace? The price was costly. All those good things I just described, all those good things Paul's mentioning in this passage, all those are yours because the price that God was willing to pay to create peace between us. Ephesians 2.13 explains the price. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What price did he pay? His broken body and his blood shed on the cross. Jesus Christ gave his life, gave his blood, gave his body, so that we could be made sons and daughters of God, so that we could have peace with God. He was broken so that you and your children and your children's children could be healed. His life was poured out so that the Spirit of God could be poured in to you. He was rejected by the Father so that you could be accepted by the Father. That's the price that Christ paid. He was punished. Punished for your sake so that you could be rewarded for his sake. All the righteousness of Christ, all the ways that he loved and obeyed his Father, he deserved everything. Everything. And yet he gave it all up. Rather, he gave it all to you. And what you deserve, the wrath of God that you deserve, the punishment for your sin that you deserve, he took. That's amazing. And he took it by allowing his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out. He was forsaken so that you could be adopted. He was made sin so that you could be made righteous. I could go on and on and on and on and describe it. You could spend your life and you ought to spend your life thinking about the great price that God has paid in Christ so that we might have peace. This is a precious peace that he has bought for us. It cannot be taken from us. So the question then is, what do we do? Before we ask, answer that question, what's our part? I just want to ask another question. You may have thought about this already, but why did he do it? Why would God do that for his enemies? It says in, in Ephesians, in chapter 2, in another place, it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still his enemies, while we were running away, attacking, tearing down what he was building up, actively opposed to all the good that he was doing in the world, right? Doing what we want, when we want, how we want, with whoever we want, for as long as we want, because we can do what we want, because we're the king, we're the queen. When we're living that way, he, he died for us. Why? Well, what does the scripture say? Ephesians chapter 2, back to Ephesians 2. There's a lot in Ephesians 2. I'd be worth reading this week and taking your time, verse by verse, really allowing God to speak to you and show you what it is that he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, it says, here's why God did this for you. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were in sin, made us alive together. 
He made us alive together, all of us alive together with Christ. Why did he do it? Love. He loves you. First John 1, 3 through 4 explains what his goal is. Out of his love, he made peace by paying the price of his son. But the end for which he gave his son, the end for which the peace was made, has not yet been revealed. Here is the ends. Here's why he wants peace. Here's what he, here's what he wants to do with the peace. First John 1, 3 through 4. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you also may have fellowship with us, so that you may have fellowship with us, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Why did God do this? He did this out of love for fellowship. God wants to share fellowship with you. God wants us, brothers and sisters in Christ, to join together as one and have fellowship with him. He wants a family in fellowship together. Now, fellowship is a word we don't use much, but it means free and generous sharing. It means partnership. It means being connected. It means giving and receiving and love. It's, it's this unity. Communion is another word for fellowship. Communion. Co to union. And that's what God wants. He did this. He made this peace at this great high price because he wants fellowship with you and I together. He's not looking for fellowship with Matt, just me and him rattling around. He wants his whole family fellowshipping together as one, and he wants all of us fellowshipping with him. And it's this big picture of a family working together on the earth. This is God's plan. This is what he wants, fellowship. So if that's what he wants and that's what he's after, what must we do to protect it? To protect the peace. You know, sometimes it seems like we think that God is just looking for some peace between us. You know, he poured his wrath out on us and he's done with all that, but he didn't like us much. I remember that I had an employee at Coldstone and uh, I worked at Coldstone a long time ago. I had an employee come in, he had bruises all over his face. I said, what happened? He said, I got a fist fight. I said, with who? Why? He said, with another student. He was talking trash. So I told him we're going to fight. We met in a parking lot and we fist fought. I'm like, and then what? He said, well, we shook hands and we moved on. I'm like, you shook hands? He's like, yeah, it's over. So in other words, he poured out his wrath on this guy. And this guy poured out his wrath on him. And now they're done. They have peace. Is that the kind of peace that we have with God? He poured his wrath out on Christ, but he doesn't like us. He never wants to see us again. Don't you mess with me anymore? No. Imagine if that same employee came home. And they're all gathered around the dinner table. And his dad gets up and he says, family, I want to introduce you to your new brother. I've just adopted a new member. And he brings in this guy and he sits him down. And it's the same kid he was fighting. That's the kind of fellowship that God wants us to have. That's the kind of peace he's looking for. He wants to make enemies friends. And it starts with you and God. And if God has made you his friend, if God has made you his son, if God has made you a citizen of his kingdom, if God is dwelling in you, how ought you relate to others? If God forgave you, how ought you relate to others? You see, the peace is worth protecting. The fellowship is worth strengthening. So how do you pay the price to protect the peace? Well, in one sense, you can't. The price for the peace was the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's paid for. But you can sacrifice, you know, pour out, give up to protect the peace. And this is what you need to do. This is what I need to do. This is what we need to do. This precious peace that God won for us, this fellowship we get to have, you protect it by humbling yourself, 
By giving up your pride in faith. In faith, you give up pride the way that Christ lowered himself. You give up your pride. The way that Christ humbled himself, you humble yourself. And you play your part in the fellowship. Jesus played his part. He, he submitted himself to the Father so that he might create the family of God. And you, you protect the peace by giving up pride, choosing humility, and playing your part in our fellowship. Because it takes real humility to take your place. It takes real humility to play your part. We don't want to play our part. We want to pick our part. We want to write our part. We want to pick our place. We want to play our place, you know, take our place. We want to decide where we fit and how we're going to relate and where what our station and status is going to be. But that's not, that's not how you protect the peace. You have to play your part. You have to be fitted together by God in the body of Christ. That's church in the valley. If this church is the church that you're going to be at, that you're going to covenant with, fellowship with, then you play your part in this body. And that's what it says in Ephesians 2, 20 through 22. It says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple to the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is putting you together, joining you together, building you together with other people. And that means you have to humbly take your place with your brothers and sisters. How do you do that? Well, one of the ways you could do that is you could take your Bible, go to every place in the New Testament that says one another, and that would give you God's direction for how you're to relate in the fellowship. There's over 61 others, and that's a great exercise to do. You may want to do that, but if you were to try to summarize them, what would you get? What would you get is what would you get what you would get is this list that I provided for you here. It's called the Church in the Valley Heart Attitudes. These are summaries of, of the one another. These are a summary of how we are to take our place in the fellowship. And it takes a lot of humility to do these. Number one, put the goals and interests of others above your own. There are verses connected to them where you can see that God has called us to do this. The first thing is we put the goals and interests of others above our own. It takes a lot of humility to sacrifice your interests, to give up your preference, to consider other people, <clears throat> to change your plans, to inconvenience yourself, to make room for them. Well, that's, that's hard to do. That takes a lot of humility, but that's your place in the fellowship. If you do this, you are protecting the peace and building the fellowship. Number two, live in an open, honest life before others. It takes a lot of humility to be honest. If you truly trust in the righteousness of Christ, then you can be real with other people because God is good with you. God has forgiven your sin. God is transforming you. And he's forgiven the other person their sin. We're all sinners. You know that's true because you fear and trust God. In humility, you've submitted to God's description of who you are. Right? And you put your confidence in Christ's righteousness to make you okay with the Father. And so it makes you okay with other people. And so you can be real. Yeah, I'm really struggling with that. Because you don't have to justify yourself. Because you don't have to manipulate what people think about you to take care of yourself. Because God is taking care of you. Because you've humbled yourself and now you're one of God's children. You've humbled yourself and allowed God to take care of you. You no longer have to lie and hide to manipulate people to take care of yourself. See how the humility works through there? That's how you play your part in the fellowship. You live an open, honest life. Number three is you give and receive scriptural correction. People are encouraging you. They're admonishing you. You tell them what's going on in your life and you let them encourage and pray and admonish and teach and instruct and correct. Yes, even correct. Brothers and sisters, correcting in love according to the word of God so that we're all becoming more and more purified. 
washing ourselves of sin, becoming wiser as a body, more and more integrated because you know this person loves you and they have your back and they're not telling you this thing because they're mad at you, but it's because they love you. They see your blind spot that you don't see and they can't stand to let you go on that way. And that kind of community, that kind of fellowship, that kind of integrity and bond, that's, that's why Christ made peace. So we can enjoy that. Then there's the clearing up of relationships. If you do wrong, if you sin, you clear it up. You ask for forgiveness. You don't just say, I'm sorry if you were offended, but I did what God said is wrong. And I agree it was wrong. And I'm sorry, would you forgive me? Of course, that takes humility. It takes humility to do hard edge number five, participate in the ministry. Because i got things I want to do on Saturdays. i got things I want to do on Sundays. I don't want to be in a group because I'm tired. It's after work. I'd rather just be home and relax. It's not even that big of a deal. But actually, the group needs you. Because when you see God's faithfulness in someone's life, when you see someone struggling and being honest and trusting God, and you see God come through for that person in their life, it makes it easier for them to trust God with theirs. We need you to help us partner to reach out to our community and share Christ and build his kingdom right here in Ontario. We need you to participate in all the ways that you can participate in our church. That takes real humility. It takes humility to do heart attitude attitude number six, to support the work financially. To give your resources and money, right? Not just the tithe, which is the first fruits of all that God has given you. You show God that you, he is your God by giving him the first and the best. This is an offering to God. Your first fruits, the tithe, the 10% of what you make. But even beyond that, contributing to people who are sick and giving them you know, meals and, and supporting people who are going on missions. And there's all sorts of ways to support the work financially. And that takes real humility because you have to humble yourself and really... Trust God. Put yourself in a vulnerable position. God, are you going to take care of me if I do this? Yes. Because as we do this with one another, it builds and strengthens our fellowship. And finally, hard attitude number seven. Follow spiritual leaders within scriptural limits. That takes real humility. In a world that hates authority, that hates any kind of authority, the constant message is you don't trust leaders, you don't obey leaders, you don't follow leaders, unless they're going in the direction you're already going. It's not following if you're already going in that direction. It's only following when you want to go left and they want to go right. Now, how can you do that? How can you follow this leader? How can you follow this community group leader? How can you follow these pastors? How can you follow your husband? How can you follow your parents? How can you follow? Because what if they make a mistake? Or what if they don't look out for you? Here's the question. Is God big enough to take care of you even through this leader? The answer is yes. And so in faith and humility, you submit to the authority structure that God has established. And you follow. Now, if we all do this together, if we are investing and strengthening our fellowship by, by playing our part in these ways. What happens? What happens is what has happened. Church in the Valley has been blessed by such a strong community of love. When I first came to Church in the Valley, that's why I came. I came to a shower for a friend. He, he was having his first baby, and it was amazing. All my friends were involved, and they were doing different games, and they were honoring the Word of God, and they were really loving this family, and they honored their parents, and it was just all well done together, and nobody was complaining. And it was, it was beautiful. It was like, wow, I want to be part of this. And then I went to a, a move. Somebody was moving from one house to another. And moves are horrible. I hate moves. You know, I, I used to move with my family when I was a kid. And, you know, start on Friday night, work all day or all evening, you know, work all Saturday into the evening. And then you walk in the house Saturday night, and it's still full of stuff. You know, all the people you, who said they were going to come, they don't come. Moving's miserable. But I came to this move, and it was, it was, it was a symphony. It was like people were in the truck and they were moving the stuff in lines to the house and they were laughing and they were tossing stuff and they were having pizza and people were cleaning and working on the house. It was just, it was amazing. It was sweet fellowship. And there's all sorts of experiences that we've enjoyed. 
over the 34 years that Church in the Valley has existed. It's been the blessing of God as we've trusted him in faith, humbled ourselves, taken our place in the fellowship, protected the peace by practicing these hard attitudes. That's what we've experienced. And if we continue to do that, if we continue to do that, then this becomes a multi-generational church. If we continue to do that, people will come into this body of fellowship and they will want to be a part of it. Our unity and love is what convinces the world that Jesus Christ is the Savior and the Son of God. That's what he says in John 17. Now we're moving into a new chapter. Into our life as a church, our 35th year, we have the building for the first time. If we stop strengthening the bonds, if we stop practicing hard attitudes, if we rest on the past, then like Israel, we will miss out on the promised land. We'll miss out on all that God has promised and all that God wants to do through us. We must strengthen and protect. So the question now is, what fellowship do you need to restore? Where has the fellowship, how has it gotten frayed? Where has there been assaults, insults, and offenses? Where do you need to fix the fellowship? Where do you need to strengthen the fellowship, right? Because God paid a high price for it. So where do you need to restore it? God has restored us to himself. When we break fellowship with one another, we break fellowship With God. That's the way this works. When we break down the body and we disturb the peace, we are breaking fellowship with God. So, ask yourself this question. Where is fellowship broken? It may be in your, you know, in your life. You know, your kids may be having a conflict, so you're restoring fellowship with them. Or maybe there's broken fellowship between you and your spouse, you and your roommate. You need to restore that. Maybe you have some friends who are fighting because of something related to COVID on, you know, on social media. You know, you see the conflict, you see the division. Be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, say Christ. God is a peacemaker. He made peace with us through Christ. So so try to restore fellowship where you can. But in your own specific personal life, have you in our church or in your home, right, have you been disturbing the peace? Have you broken fellowship? For example, are you easily upset? Have you been in the last two years? There's been lots of opportunities for it, right? Lots of opportunities. Things have been changing. Have you been easily upset? What we call in our family a grumpy grumperson. And it's always kind of like, mm, mm, mm. when you do that, when you're upset, Right? When you're disappointed with something someone's done, they always do this, they always say this, or they didn't do it again, they didn't do it again, they, they, they keep making the same mistake. When, when you feel that way, you can break fellowship with the person. But what we need to do is respond in faith, the way that God treats us. So in Psalm 103.10, it says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, so we shouldn't deal with each other according to our sins. Nor does he repay us according to our iniquities, so we shouldn't repay each other according to their iniquities. It says, for he knows our frame. He knows we're weak. He remembers we are dust. Look, he he knows what we are, who we are, how weak we are. And we need to treat one another with the same kind of patience. We need to be patient with people the way God is patient with us. We need to overlook offenses the way God overlooks them with us. Have you ever been in a hotel that's under construction? There's like signs everywhere that say, Please be patient with us. We're under construction. We need that sign over our heads as human beings because all of us are in construction. God is transforming and sanctifying us. And so please be patient, just as God is patient with you. Restore fellowship. If you've been upset, calm down, be patient with people, and allow people time and space to grow. Or maybe you just, you've been feeling defrauded. Like, I always invite them over, they never invite me over, you know, I let the money, they don't lend me money, I bought them a present, they didn't buy me a present, you know, I said a nice thing, they didn't say a nice thing, you know. We had coffee and I just listened and asked questions and they never asked me any questions, right? You feel defrauded, like you're not, it's not reciprocal. You're in this fellowship, in the church, 
but you don't feel like you're getting yours. You know, you're always giving, but you're, you're never getting. Maybe you've had that feeling. And, you know, that may be the case in some specific situation. How do you respond? Do you disfellowship and pull back? Do you cut people off? Do you get cold? Do you ghost people? No. You respond in faith. You need to remember that all that you do for your brothers and sisters in Christ, you do for Christ. That's what the Lord says. Matthew 25, 37 through 40. Read it. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. The Lord Jesus will answer them. This is the truth about you pouring out, but maybe not feel like you're getting back. Truly, I say to you, church in the valley, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When you pour out yourself for others in Jesus' name, your children, sanctified in the Lord, your husband or wife, your brothers and sisters in Christ here at Church in the Valley, when you pour yourself out and you take another meal to another family that's sick, right? When you do that, you're doing it unto the Lord. And so when you start to feel like, man, when do I get mine? Remember that God has received it as an offering. And so you should look up and say, Lord, would you please refresh me as I've tried to refresh others? And you should say, you know, Lord, I have been refreshed and blessed and poured out by you. And I'm happy to pour it out to your children. Happy to do it. And that's the attitude and approach that we have to constantly choose to protect the peace and strengthen the fellowship. Because God paid a high price for those of us who were at once at war with him. You see, we were at war, but he restored fellowship by paying a high price for peace out of his love. And so we protect that peace at a high price by choosing to take our place in the fellowship. And that means when we've broken fellowship, we restore it. Just as God has restored fellowship with us. This is how we worship Jesus Christ. And we benefit, of course, we benefit. Now, how do you know if you've broken fellowship? Well, here's how you know. One, you've disfellowshipped people. You're involved in disfellowshipping. What does that mean? Well, you've pulled back, you've grown cold, you check out, you've begun to protect yourself, you're not returning phone calls, you're ghosting people, you've withdrawn maybe in your marriage, you check out, or you're disfellowshipping people in your family, like your kids or your, your siblings, because you feel like they always mistreat you, and so you just stop talking to them, there's no eye contact, you don't enjoy their company, you can't wait to get away from them. These are signs that the fellowship is being broken, and it's your responsibility to get out there and fix it. Or maybe you've cut off people because you've been offended. You know, you're offended about their opinions on masks or diet or vaccines or whatever. You're just offended about something. So what you have to do is you have to restore it by confessing, saying, I've been breaking off fellowship. It wasn't right. Uh, would you forgive me? I'd like to, you know, I'd like to restore our fellowship. I'd like to enjoy each other again. And then the second way you know is grumbling. If you're grumbling a lot, you know that, uh, the fellowship is being strained or broken. Now, grumbling usually be, is usually a, a, grumbling is usually uh, directed at authorities. So Israel grumbled all the time, and they got major discipline for it. I mean, they were constantly being killed and struck with disease and snakes because they were grumbling, 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 grumbling. God does not tolerate grumbling. We don't do it. So if you've been complaining, you know, questioning, you know, kind of grumbling, not really sure, I'm just blowing off steam. You got to stop. It's just, it's biblically out of bounds and it will make all sorts of trouble for you and for the fellowship. So if you see somebody who has something you don't have, you know, why don't they ever get sick? They're never sick. Or why do they always get to have that nice vacation? Or why did they get to have this? Or I wish I could have that. That's actually grumbling against God because you're coveting. You're saying, God, you don't take care of me. 
Why don't you give me that good thing over there? You're not a good father. That's a kind of offense. It's grumbling towards God. Or if you have leaders, which we all do, you know, uh, parents, husbands, um, teachers, uh, civil leaders, pastors, you don't agree with the direction that they're going. You don't agree with the priorities they have. You don't agree with the decision that they made. Or you know them, like you know me and all my weaknesses, and you're like, you yeah, know, why, why should we follow him? You know, that's, that's a real typical thing for grumbling. And so when you grumble, when you feel like grumbling, or if you are grumbling, then you clear it up. You clear it up with the people who heard you grumble. You ask them to forgive you. You're not going to do that anymore. And uh, you go directly to the person. So when I was a teacher at a high school in um, Claremont, uh, I found out that in my department meeting, which we had for like a decade, in this one room where we always sat in the same places, I sat in my place, they sat in their place, we all sat in our places. After a decade, this new department chair was like, everybody has to sit in a circle. <laughs> and he was like, you need to come over here, Matt. And I said, I, I want to sit here. I've been sitting here for a decade. He's like, no, you have to sit over here because our boss said so. So I was like, okay. So I went directly to my boss right after the meeting and said, did you say that we have to sit in a circle? And he said, yeah, and here's why. And I said, I don't think it's a good idea. I mean, why, why should we sit in a circle? I mean, we've been doing a great thing. And he's like, here's why. And he tells me his reasons. I didn't agree with his reasons. But after he said that's what he wanted, we did it. And I did it. I didn't complain. I didn't grumble. I just went right to him. And I love that about my old boss because I could always go in his office and I could always call him and, and go directly to him if there was something that didn't make sense or didn't understand or I had a complaint or something like that question. And that's how we handle uh, uh, disagreements or problems when it comes to our leaders. So if you grumbled or if you disfellowship from brothers or sisters, if you're upset a lot or if you're feeling defrauded, these are all areas where you need to restore fellowship. And I want to encourage you to do that. Okay? Because the peace that he bought at the price of his broken body and shed blood is worth us protecting. Because we're not at war with each other. God was at war with us, but we're not at war with God anymore. We're not at war with each other. Our enemy is sin, Satan, and this world, which is constantly trying to atomize and rip us apart, destroy our fellowship, like a, like a bag full of BBs. Look, here's a picture of a bag full of BBs. This is what our enemy wants to do to us. He wants to rip us apart and make us easy to control and manipulate by tearing down and ripping apart our fellowship. But we weren't created to be a bag full of BBs. We weren't created to be atomized into individual parts, isolated. We were created for strong molecular bonds. This is a molecule. And this is what a church is. This is what our community of faith is. We are a strong molecular bonded church. This is what we were made for. And we can't allow the enemy to come in here and rip that all apart so he can easily control and destroy because that's what he wants to do. That's our enemy. Jesus said it clearly in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He is an atomizer, a divider, a destroyer, a shredder of souls, shredders of families, a destroyer of marriages, a destroyer of friendships, a, a divider and atomizer of a fellowship. And we must protect and fight against that. This is our true enemy, not one another. And the lockdowns have only exacerbated it. Social distancing is literally societal atomization. Don't go to work. Don't go to your friends. Don't go to church. Don't sing at church. You can't go to the hospital when someone's in the, in the hospital. You can't go to their wedding. You can't go to their funeral. Right? You can't go to the park. You can't go shopping. It's atomized our society. And what that does is that makes us very easy to control. It makes us very suspicious, very susceptible to offense. But that's not what Jesus Christ does. The solution to our society's problem, the chaos that this creates, is Christ. We have what they need. We still have what they need. They need Christ. Christ who is the one that makes peace. Christ who is the one who builds the fellowship, who restores the molecular bonds between his children. 
That's the good news that we bring into this world. That's how we fulfill our mission. And that's how the church has been fulfilling its mission for 2,000 years. It has been the strong fellowship of so many different diverse people who love and serve one another, who practice these hard attitudes, who are aggressive on the mission to invite more people. That is the vehicle. That is the, the weaponry. That is the way that God has expanded his kingdom over this globe. And you see it at the very beginning. So I'd like to close with this. I'd like to close with this, because if we go into 2022, we want to see Christ save more people as he saved us. How does he do it? He does it through the fellowship that he has created, through the peace that he has purchased with his once enemies, you and I. Here's the picture of the first century church. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together. And had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all, to any that had need. Day by day by day by day, as they spent much time together, much time in the temple, they broke bread in their homes and they ate their food with glad and generous hearts together, praising God together and having goodwill of all the people that watched on the outside who had been atomized by two years of COVID lockdowns. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is how the church expands. They come and see. They come and taste and see that the Lord is good. So we started the message with the summary, which was in Christ, God has ended the war and restored fellowship between himself and man. And we end the message with this challenge. As God's restored sons and daughters, love one another more and more this year. Love the brethren at Church in the Valley, more and more this year. And as ambassadors of the King of Peace, Jesus Christ, appeal to those who are still at war with God, your neighbors, your family, your friends, your coworkers, appeal to everyone, be restored to God. He's made peace with you. And come and join our fellowship. That's what we're doing. Remember, remember what the Lord says. Our labor is not in vain. If we will do this, if we will love one another and build up the bonds of fellowship this year, and God will grow our church with those who are being saved. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your encouragement. We thank you for the truth that you've given us today. We hope you apply it to our hearts, Lord. Pray that you restore where our fellowship has been frayed or broken. We thank you for the sweet fellowship we've enjoyed. Lord God, we're willing to pay any price to protect it. And we pray that you would use the unity and love that we have for one another to add more and more this year, those who are being saved. In Jesus' name, amen.